Hey, good morning, everybody. It is great to have you with us today. I got to tell you, I've seen people this morning that I haven't seen in literally a year, and that is so good. I'm so thankful for that. You know, it's always good to worship together, but that's especially true during the season we're in right now. Uh, For the past 2,000 years, Christians have set aside this week to focus on the final days of Jesus leading up through the crucifixion and the resurrection, which we celebrate next Sunday, Easter. And I'm especially excited about Easter this year. We haven't had an Easter service in this building in almost two years. Isn't that crazy? In 2020, we were online only, and of course, we'll still be online. That's not going away. Uh, But we also want to make sure that we have space available for everyone who wants to worship here in person. And that's why we're having three on-site services next Sunday, 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And just a heads up, we will not have kids programming at the 8 o'clock service, uh, but at 9.30 and 11, we'll have preschool and elementary ministry just like normal So if you don't have kids and you are able to come at 8, that would open up space for families who want to come. And I hope you will join me this week in praying for people who need Jesus and then reaching out and inviting them to join us at Plum Creek for Easter. You've got an invite card in your bulletin today. And I want to challenge you to think of one person or one family that you can invite to join us. Uh, We're also giving out special take-home Easter egg kits this morning. Uh, There are boxes out in the uh, information center in the gathering area. Uh, These boxes have uh, activities and crafts and other fun stuff. And and when you get one, feel free to take one for your family and an extra one for another family. Uh, This is another way we can invite people to join us. And I've said this a lot over the years, but Easter is one of those times when people are most open to an invitation to come to church. And I think that's especially true right now, because over the past year, people have been looking for hope. And that's what next week is about. We're going to share the hope that's only found in Jesus. Well, I am excited to jump back into our Love First series this morning. We're in week four of this series, and every week we're looking at different people who had an encounter with Jesus. And in each of these encounters, Jesus sets an example for us to follow. With everyone he meets, Jesus shows us how to love first. Because it didn't matter who it was, it didn't matter what they had done, Jesus always starts with love. And over the past few weeks, We've been learning how to love people in different categories. Uh, We've talked about people we disagree with, the ones who just don't get it. We talked about people with a messy past. Next week is about people who are hurting or hopeless. But today, I'll be honest with you, today we're going to cover the most challenging topic of all. We're going to talk about loving our enemies. And this is a tough one, right? Because when there is a person in your life who is literally out to get you, is it really possible to love that person first, to to lead with love? And would God really expect you to love someone who is in the process of hurting you? Well, Jesus is pretty clear on this. 
In Matthew chapter 5, he puts it this way. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So there's not much room to misinterpret that, right? Uh, But let's be real. Uh, This command goes completely against the grain of our natural inclinations. Uh, We just don't want to do this, right? Uh, Seriously, uh, when people have hurt you or they've hurt someone you care about, what is it that you want to do? Sometimes you want to get revenge, right? You want that person to go through the same kind of pain that they've put others through. Other times, though, you wouldn't go that far. You just want to fight back with words. You want to get in your enemy's face and tell them off. You want to find the perfect comeback, and you can just hit them where it hurts. But then occasionally, uh, there are times when you can keep your cool. And you're not going to be vengeful or vindictive. Uh, you, don't, you don't need to resort to counterattacks or angry words. You've got self-control. But even in those moments, even when you're in that generous mood, isn't it kind of satisfying to imagine that person getting the payback they deserve? I could uh, ask for a show of hands here. I could check and see how many of us are familiar with this inclination to get back at the people who've hurt us. But I probably don't need to ask, right? Because this inclination comes naturally to everyone, uh, even those of us who may seem laid back or non-aggressive. I mean, look at me. Uh, I don't think anyone would call me a hothead, but I've still had my moments This week, I was thinking back to my childhood, and I remembered a few things that I haven't thought about in a long time. For example, when I was in second grade, um, some kid in my class did something to make me very angry. I I don't remember what it was, but what I do remember is (laughs) coming up to this kid and shoving him so hard that he fell backwards over the desk behind him. I'm not proud of that, uh, but I did it, and I did get into some trouble for that one. Uh, I also remembered a different incident that happened when I was in fourth grade. Uh, There was a kid on the bus. He just had a big mouth. He he had this habit of insulting me and trying to get under my skin. And one day, I just had enough, and I walked up to him on the bus, and I punched him. I don't think my wife has even heard this story. Um, But after that day... He never talked smack anymore. I never had any trouble with him. In fact, he started telling other kids that I was pretty cool. Now, I I do have to say, uh, if there are any kids listening right now, I am not telling you that it's okay to go punch other kids. Don't say that the the preacher did it so I can too. That's not what this story is about. Uh, And actually, I currently have a very long streak of not punching anybody. Um, but I know, if I'm being completely honest, I still have this inclination inside of me. In certain situations, you could stir up some serious anger in me. For example, if you messed with my kids, it would be very difficult for me to hold my temper. Uh, I'd be very tempted to do just what comes naturally. But according to Jesus, he doesn't want us to choose any of those things that come naturally. Not acts of revenge, 
not verbal attacks, not even cruel thoughts. They're all off limits. Instead, he tells us to choose love. And that is so extreme, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult enough to follow the other instructions in the Bible that tell us how to relate to our enemies. Check out what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul's trying to talk us down here, right? He says, take a breath, cool down a little. You don't have to get revenge because our God is a God of justice. So let him handle it. And in these verses, Paul tells us what not to do, right? Don't get revenge. And I think I I can handle that um, because the goal is to not do what I feel like doing. And and if that's the case, uh, a non-response is okay. I can just ghost that other person. But Paul goes on. In the next verse, he says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul just raised the difficulty level here, right? He doesn't leave room for a non-response. I'm supposed to perform random acts of kindness for the very people who are out to get me. And and that's not going to be easy. Uh, But we do have that one mysterious phrase here. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What's that about? Well, some interpret that phrase to mean that your kindness will give the other person a guilt trip and and they'll feel terrible about what they've done. Your kind deeds would cause them to feel guilt. Their guilt would be the burning coals. And if I start to enjoy that idea of making the other person feel bad, my good deeds could actually be a backhanded way of punishing that other person. But of course, that's not what Paul means here. His instructions are in complete agreement with the command of Jesus. Let's go back and read that. Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So in the time we have left today, we're going to see if we can learn how to do this. And before we go on, I want you to know, I realize that for some people, this topic is very personal. It's not lighthearted. It's not hypothetical. Because some people in your life have done some terrible things and they have wounded you deeply. And I want to be clear here uh, When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, there are certain things that he does not mean. He does not mean that you just let yourself be a doormat. Uh, He's not saying that you shouldn't set healthy boundaries. He's not saying that you should allow yourself to be hurt or abused. 
Because there are situations when you need, to, you need to protect yourself and protect the ones you love. There are situations when you need to call for backup because your enemy needs to face the consequences of what he or she has done. But even through all of that, Jesus does say that it is possible to love your enemies. He goes beyond that, doesn't he? He doesn't just say it's possible. He gives this as a command. And how could Jesus do that? How could he tell us to do something that it seems to fly in the face of justice? Well, Jesus did not just tell us to do this. He actually lived it. Jesus loved first. Even the people who were out to get him. Even the ones who chose to be his enemy. And again, if we're going to follow this command from Jesus, we need to look at his example. How did he do it? Well, we could look at several different episodes, but for the moment, let's consider Judas Iscariot. Judas is probably the most infamous traitor in all of history. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But, you know, there's a part of his story that we don't often think about. On the night of the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was crucified, something amazing happened. Now, in the days leading up to the Last Supper, Judas had visited the chief priests in Jerusalem, and he had already decided that he was ready to betray Jesus. And when the priests found out that he was willing to do this, they were more than happy to work with him. So Judas cut a deal with the priests, and from that point on, he looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities that opportunity came on the night of the Last Supper. Let's pick up the story in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, starting with verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What Jesus does here is remarkable. Because he is the king of all kings. He is the man who is also God. He's the one who holds everything in the universe together. Jesus deserves all worship and all praise and all devotion. But this great king stooped down in humility and he made himself a servant. Right here, he's, he's doing a job that would barely pay minimum wage, if that. And Jesus not only served his real friends here, he also washed the feet of someone who was literally out to get him. Because at this point, Judas had already crossed the line. He was no longer a friend of Jesus. He was the enemy. And I'm confident that during this entire experience, while Jesus washed his feet, I'm confident that Judas was in turmoil. I bet he looked down just trying to figure out a way to escape this awkward situation as soon as possible. He wanted to leave that dinner. He was ready to go out. 
and deliver Jesus to his executioners. And here's what's amazing to me. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was thinking this entire time. A few verses later, Jesus was still at dinner talking to the disciples. And he was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples looked around at each other and they're like, what is he talking about? And finally, John looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, who is it? And then down in verse 26, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. He knew, right? But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. It was night. From there, the story takes an even darker turn. Judas followed through with his plan. He led the authorities to Jesus, kissed him on the cheek. But later, Judas realized that he had done a terrible thing. He said, I have sinned and I've betrayed innocent blood. And he goes to the temple and he throws the pieces of silver inside. And then he goes and takes his own life. You know, sometimes people have come to me and they've said, do you think it's possible that somehow Judas made it to heaven? Based on what we see in Scripture, we have no reason to believe that Judas is in heaven. And that's why it's so tragic to look back on that episode of the foot washing. When Judas walked out of the Last Supper and he went to betray Jesus, he left with clean feet. Even while Judas was in that act of betrayal, Jesus still served him. I'm confident that Jesus loved him even then. Even when it comes to his enemies, Jesus loves first. That pattern continued when Jesus was crucified. The Bible records seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. And do you know what the first statement was? You can see it in Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You know, for me, this is one of the most shocking things that Jesus ever said. I was thinking about it this week, and I noticed a couple of things. First, the people who killed Jesus, they weren't just kind of bad. These were evil people. However, Jesus never stopped seeing them as human beings. He never lost sight of the fact that each one of them was created by God. They were all precious in God's sight. But somewhere along the way, they started to believe in lies. And when it came to the crucifixion, they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus understood that, so he cried out, Father, forgive them. Now, when he said that, that doesn't mean that these evil people were automatically forgiven without admitting or repenting of their sin, but here's what it does mean. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, 
He's revealing the heart of God. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to spend eternity in hell, separated from him forever. Even if you have chosen to be God's enemy, he still loves first. And in the end, it all comes down to this. When we talk about Jesus loving his enemies, it's not just about Judas. It's not just about the people who sent him to the cross. So who are we talking about? There's a powerful message over in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says that God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Somehow, the sacrifice of Jesus made peace. And what does that mean? Well, there's no need to make peace unless there's a war going on, right? And what was that war? Paul explains it in the next verse. And remember, he's writing to followers of Jesus here. And he says, this peace includes you. You who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. There it is. You were his enemy. I was his enemy. You and I were at war with God. We chose to sin. Every one of us, every one of us was in open rebellion against our Creator. But Paul goes on. Yet now God has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. And as a result, He has brought you into His own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. When the meaning of this verse sinks into your heart, there are really only two ways to respond. Number one, if you haven't given your life over to Jesus and you haven't accepted the peace that comes between you and God, the only response that makes sense is to accept that gift. Number two, if you have received that peace and you have the blessing of a restored and reconciled relationship with God, the only way to respond is It's with love and humility and deep gratitude. You say, Lord, I don't deserve this, but thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. And you see how all of this carries over into our relationships with other people? Here's what happens. When I realize that God loved me first, when I was his enemy, the door opens for me to love my enemies. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus, this is a huge part of the equation. We have to remember that we all need God's forgiveness, His grace. And if you belong to Jesus, it is possible to forgive others in the same way that God forgave you. Now, I say that it's possible, but it's only possible if you have supernatural help. It's only going to happen when God transforms your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and you start to take on the character of Jesus. If if we try to love our enemies without God's help, it's it's not going to work. It's not going to be true love. It's going to get twisted somehow. So it's like I said in the beginning, when it comes to this whole love first idea, this is the most challenging category of all. But the reality is, regular people have accomplished this. Last year, I I read a book that had a big impact on me. I mentioned it a few months ago. 
The book is called The Hiding Place. It was written by Corey Ten Boom. And Corey was a part of a Christian family that lived in the Netherlands during World War II. And her family risked their lives trying to hide Jews, trying to keep them from being arrested and killed by the Nazis. Unfortunately, Corey and several other members of her, their family, uh, they were captured. They, they were taken to concentration camps, and many of them died. There's a section in the book where Corey talks about her sister, Betsy. Betsy was an amazing woman. She was a deeply devoted follower of Jesus. And Corey and Betsy were imprisoned in Ravensbrück, which was a Nazi death camp for women. And they were forced into hard labor for 16 hours a day. They were given very little to eat. And Betsy had never been in good health, but now she just grew weaker by the day. And at one point, Betsy had a run-in with a guard who was known as the snake. That guard gave Betsy a, a serious beating. And for Corey, that was the last straw. She ran over to her sister who was bleeding. And she looked up and she said, I hate that woman. And Betsy turned to Corey and she said, don't hate Corey. Pray for that woman. These people know how to hate and look what it's done to them. Corey just cried. And she said, how can you pray for those monsters? As more time passed, Betsy's health continued to decline. One day, on a December morning that was bitterly cold, the prisoners all stood outside for roll call. Sometimes that roll call lasted for hours. It was a crazy test of endurance. And on this particular day, there was a woman with a mental disability, and she wasn't able to pass that endurance test. And Corey and Betsy watched as the snake beat that woman to death. Corey's heart broke for that woman, and she said, Betsy, what can we do for these people? After the war, I mean... She said, do you think we could create a home for them and care for them and love them? Betsy said, Corey, I pray every day that we would be able to do this. She said, Corey, if, if these people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. Corey was shocked because Betsy wasn't talking about the other prisoners. She was talking about the guards. They're persecutors. They're enemies. Later, Betsy was near death. Corey came near to her, and, and Betsy was still describing this dream of hers that she had. She said, one day, Corey, we'll take over a camp, a concentration camp, but this time we're in charge, and it's no longer a prison. It's a place of love. It's a place of healing. It's a place where people who have been warped by the philosophy of hate can learn a better way. There will be no walls, no barbed wire. There will be window boxes on the barracks. She said, it'll, it'll be so good for them watching things grow. People can learn to love 
from flowers, she said. Not long after that, Betsy died. So yes, loving your enemies is very difficult. And you do need supernatural help. But with God, it is possible. You can pray for those who persecute you. In fact, that's probably the best place to start. Pray that God will help you love the person who's out to get you. In fact, um, we should think about what we can pray for that enemy. It's absolutely okay to pray that our enemies will come to their senses and recognize their sin and show true remorse and repentance. But it's also a good thing to pray that God would bless that person Pray that they would find a relationship with Jesus and that their lives would be changed for eternity. And you know what? Through this whole process, you might just find that God blesses you in some unexpected ways. I need to share an epilogue from Corey Ten Boom's life. After the war, she started speaking around the world and sharing her story. And one day, she was speaking in a church in Munich, Germany, and all of a sudden, she recognized a man in the crowd. He was heavy set. He was balding. He held a brown hat between his hands, and Corey recognized that this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, where she had been imprisoned, and it all came back to her. The hate, the inhumanity, the shame. Then after Corey finished speaking, that man walked up to her and he said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since then, I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I've done. But I was also hoping to hear that from your lips. And he held out his hand and he said, Fraulein, will you forgive me? Corey stood there frozen. She wasn't perfect herself. She knew that. She still needed God's forgiveness every single day. But still, she couldn't find it in herself to forgive that man. After all, Betsy had died in that camp. So how could this man try to erase her death simply by asking for forgiveness? Corey said the man stood there with his hand out, probably for just a few seconds, but for her, it felt like hours because she was wrestling with something she just didn't want to do. But she also knew that forgiveness, it's not an emotion that you feel. It's an act of will. So she prayed, and she said, Jesus, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But I need you to give me the feeling. I want to read Corey's description of what happened next. She says, and so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. 
you know, loving our enemies, it feels unfair. It seems unjust. And that's because it is unjust. But that's the definition of grace, right? God's grace is a gift that we don't deserve. We didn't deserve it when Jesus went to the cross. We deserved to pay the penalty of death for our sins, but he took our sins on his shoulders. He died so that we didn't have to face eternal death. And even though it's unfair, it's a beautiful thing. And this is what it means when God loves first. This is what it means to experience God's grace and then share God's grace. This is where we find true freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we probably don't think of ourselves as people who were your enemies, but it's true. That's what we all were. And I praise you, Lord, that some of us have peace with you because of what Jesus has done. Lord, help us to be humble and grateful every day for what you've done. And for anyone here who has not yet accepted that peace, I pray that you will work on their heart, give them the boldness to make that decision. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.